Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Okay, there we go. You got me okay? Am I too loud? Yeah, or am yeah. I all right? No, you're perfect. I, I can, you're the perfect volume. I can see you. I, I assume you can see me now. Yep. Good stuff. What a brave okay. new world, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, this technology is kind of how we all got through this last year. Yep. Um, first of all, this is one of the best books I've ever read. And I genuinely wow. mean that. I'm not just saying it to be to be kind and get on your good side. My my two favorite genres of literature are music biographies and travel writing. So the singing earth for me was just the perfect marriage of those two things. And I wrote a book myself last year, so I'm no stranger to the art of creating these things. I know the the level of thought and effort that goes in and the presentation with the chapters as verses, the playlist, the music as the you know, you go along. It was just an amazing ride, and I would love to use this book, if that's all right with you, Barrett, as the, the foundation of today's conversation. Absolutely. I'm really honored that uh, – well, thank you for reading it. Um, Matt you know, did send me the other one as well, by the way. I haven't got around oh, to reading this ahead of the chat, but I look forward to. Um, the Way of the Zen Cowboy. Yeah, I can't wait to get stuck into that one. But Singing yeah, Earth, the, incredible. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I, I really uh, – I have got 
I've gotten really good feedback on both books, but um, you know, for, for singing earth as a first book, um, I think it did pretty well. I think I hit the mark I was aiming for, let me put it that way, which was to combine my love of music around the world with my love of travel. And, you know, just kind of like, you know, tell people what's, what's going on out there. That's really quite amazing that you're not going to hear on American radio stations or maybe even the BBC, you know, it's like, there's incredible music happening all over the planet. And that's just kind of like a little guidebook. Well, not just music either. What shines through in that book is your deep love of life and people and the human condition and the planet. Like it is so much more than just a music book. Obviously, you know, music forms the the thread which ties it all together and you're traveling around the world to learn about music. But through the process of doing that, the way you write about us, people, human beings, life, it's it's all in there. Were you always, before you went traveling around the world, were you always actively engaged in the human condition, would you say? I would say as much as you can when you're a, a naive young man, you know, just getting started in music. I mean, I, I do think being born and, and raised in the Pacific Northwest kind of gives you this, uh, this appreciation of the natural environment. Um, I mean, I still live here and uh, I've been all over the, I've been on six continents and I still come back here and I always appreciate how beautiful the Pacific Northwest is and how important the, uh, the human culture is as well. You know, how much I love uh, the music scene here, the, the, the creative people in general. And I mean that, you know, like every category, artists and architects and writers and filmmakers. And, um, and so when I, when I began to travel and uh, really see the world, you know, of course that was originally through music, but then I, I saw these opportunities where I could travel to other, um, just more, uh, unusual places, you know, so sometimes it was, you know, a developing country, but sometimes it was just kind of off the map, kind of, uh, you know, untread territory where rock bands don't tend to go. And when I did that, I started to see, you know, the commonness in humanity that how we have a lot of the same values and the same desires. And then it just manifests differently. You know, the ornamentation of that particular place comes out in the music and in the languages. and. Um, this has been an ongoing lifelong thing for me. I mean, I went back to graduate school to study ethnomusicology and anthropology and linguistics. And so when I got more training in that, it just gave, gave me uh, a wider ability to look for it as well. You know, this is all about the, the capacity of the, of, the, of the human mind and the human heart to open and be able to see more possibilities. Yeah, and obviously your story does begin in the Pacific Northwest, and I'd love to get your thoughts on why you think so much great, well, we can focus on the music first of all, but there's so much other stuff as well, but what do you think it is about that place that made it this breeding ground for so many supreme talents in the world of music, you know, from the kind of Sonics and Jimi Hendrix on? You know, rock music sort of always been thriving in that part of the world, hasn't it? You talk about it in the book, but I'd love it if you could just shed some light on your thoughts on that here. That's a very good question. And it's very timely because just by coincidence, yesterday I did a, 
about a two hour interview for a film that's about Delta blues, it, yeah, you know, and yeah, its yeah. influence on America. Well, on all, you know, world music. Um, and, and there's a real parallel between the Mississippi Delta and the Pacific Northwest. And, um, you know, for your listeners there in London, I would even, uh, you know, make a connection between the incredible music scene that came out of the, out of the UK. And what's interesting about, we'll start with the Pacific Northwest first. What's interesting about here is that we have a similar, even though it's geographically very different from the Mississippi Delta, we have that same working class thing here. You know, this, this whole area was built on agricultural working class um, industries. So um, obviously farming and, you know, all the different forms of agriculture, timber, uh, logging, fishing, um, various forms of, of manufacturing. And of course we, we've always had Boeing aircraft here has, you know, has been here since uh, God, I think like the 1930s or something like that. And uh, my family was from, uh, the South and they moved here during world war II. So I was born up here, but half my family is from Arkansas. And that was a very musical family. And I've always found that whenever you go to working class culture, you'll find the best music, the most interesting music. It's almost like people that have to work hard, uh, to, you know, raise their families and, and, and feed, feed everybody and, and keep a standard of life uh, where, where they can, they have a little bit of extra time and money to enjoy music. That's where you'll find the best music. And that was absolutely the case in the Mississippi Delta with all the music that came out of there. And it's still an ongoing, very fertile scene here in the Pacific Northwest. It's changed over the decades. Um, rock and roll is obviously still here, but it's also, it's evolved and we have, um, there's great hip hop artists from here. And prior to all of that, there was this totally happening blues and jazz scene in the 1930s and 1940s, because um, famously Ray Charles and Quincy Jones uh, rented an apartment together here in the late 1940s when they were young men just getting started. So there was something that drew people to the, to the Pacific Northwest. Um, and not to go on too long about this, but there's also the interesting parallel that Seattle was this huge music scene, which really the only thing comparable to that was maybe what came out of London in the 1960s and early 70s, where you had all these incredible British bands that were blues-based rock and roll bands. But from what I can tell, it seems like there's still a community there of all those older musicians and, the, and then the next generation of bands that came up that they kind of mentored. And we have that same kind of energy here in the Northwest, where old timers like me and, you know, other people that are from here, you know, we work with the next generation to, to bring them up and give them the best advice we can give them. Did the Seattle grunge scene have that though? Because it seemed like it was just, you were all kids and everybody was so young. But were, That's were true. There those yeah. older figures around that were nurturing that talent? Or well, I mean. There were a few older figures, but you're right. We were all very young and uh, we were kind of just figuring out as we go. But what we did have was this, and this is a true thing. It's not, you know, historical revisionism. It's actually the way it was. There was like this mutual support and, and um, I, I guess you just call it a love for all the other bands, you know? So we really were excited to see everybody have success. And 
it was sort of like, huh, I wonder when, when that band is going to pop, you know, like when's their moment going to happen? And then boom, it would happen. And, and we would often tour together. So, you know, the Screaming Trees did a, a world tour with Alice in Chains in 1993, where we went all over Europe, all over North America, Australia. Um, and then we all, you know, kept touring on our own after that. And then a few years later, we were on Lollapalooza with Soundgarden. And uh, that went on for, you know, I don't know, 30 or 40 shows. It, it seemed kind of endless, actually. <laughs> and then the years just kind of go by, you know, like years go by and you find yourself, you're getting older and, and, uh, and some bands are, are still having su success. Some bands have broken up, uh, but they, you know, we always kept reconnecting with each other and there was always like this mutual support network. But back in the beginning, you know, we, I guess what we really had is we had records that those were our guideposts. So, yeah. you know, a lot of people would say that the Seattle music scene was equally influenced by Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath as much as the Stooges, the Sonics, and Iggy, uh, you know, Iggy Pop. Well, I guess that's the Stooges, but you know, the, yeah, yeah. there's sort of like an ethos in there that that's all intertwined, you know. Yeah, and the Sonic as well, like the sounds. And what, what's really fascinating to me is the the guys that you work so closely with, like Lanigan and, and Lane, were so ahead of their time and seemed so you know, like a Janis Joplin type, like the, the wisdom that comes through in those vocal performances far exceeds their years when they were recording them. Um, and, yeah. you know, I, I only really came to Screaming Trees and Mad Season in the, you know, the last few years, and I'm 35, like I grew up on 90s music, but for whatever reason, Screaming Trees and Mad Scene and just kind of fell between the gaps for me. And I'm kind of glad that they did because now I am a little bit more mature and, and worldly discovering those records and the again the humanity in both of them i would love to talk to you a little bit about making sweet oblivion in new york um how those songs all came together obviously don fleming producing you talk about it again in the book that record for me just oozes soul and every song just like you know it just kind of flows into the next so seamlessly so organically it's a true like masterpiece beautiful record that album is and timeless Oh, thank you. Yeah, that is a really special album. And uh, well, just to, to comment on, you know, on age and all of that, you know, I'm, I'm almost 54. So I'm nearly 20 years older than you. And, and Lanigan's a couple years older than me. So he's, you know, more than 20 years older than you. Um, Lane would and I were exactly the same age. So he'd be the same age I am. And, and both those guys were very wise men for their age. I mean, a lot of us kind of grew up a little bit difficult. We had, you know, kind of hard, uh, I mean, I would just say blue collar kind of rough existences growing up. And so then you, you put us in a band and throw us out on the road going all over the world and you, you learn a lot of stuff really fast. I think when we made the Sweet Oblivion album, uh, the Screaming Trees had made what, like three or four, no, I guess, four four independent albums and then one major label album so that might have been like the sixth album the band had made but i'll tell you this i had just been recruited into the band and i'd been in skinyard prior to that and mm -hmm. skinyard was one of the first grunge bands as well and uh the a and r from epic records came to seattle for a band meeting and he just laid it out and he said listen you guys have to make a really great record and it needs to be successful or you're going to get dropped 
So we went into the studio knowing that if we didn't make a great record, that that would probably be the end of the Screaming Trees. And maybe for them, they were like, well, you know, it's our sixth album, uh, whatever, that's just what's going to happen. But for me, it was my first real big band playing, you know, for a major label album. And so I already had a rehearsal space set up and those guys came to my space and we're like, wow, this is much nicer than where we practice. We're just going to move our gear into your loft space. And we just started. That, would, that on... wouldn't be the last time that happened, right? By all accounts. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I, that's my advice for all young drummers. Get a rehearsal space and you'll always have a band. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like a, it was a really cool loft space on Jackson Street in, in uh, downtown Seattle. And it, ironically, Jackson Street was the street where all the blues and jazz clubs were in the 1930s and 1940s. It was like this happening, you know, music scene. But this is like early 1991. So uh, it was a very different atmosphere at that point. So we started rehearsing the songs. You know, a lot of them were already demos in progress, but a lot of them we wrote and arranged in that, in my space. I think the influence I had is because I came from, you know, a jazz music school background, I had this whole thing about arranging, like you always have to arrange a song, you got to have an intro and your verses and your choruses, but you got to do clever twists and turns here and there to make it interesting. Otherwise, it's just every song sounds the same. So we really spent a lot of time doing that working on arrangements and coming up with um, completely new parts to go with these demos that Lee and Van had been writing. And then Lanigan would come in and, and uh, he would um, try out new lyrics and, and kind of evolve it, you know, evolve his lyrics as the songs evolved. So that by the time we got to New York and started the, you know, basic tracking, uh, we were really well rehearsed, maybe more than they'd ever rehearsed for any previous album. And, uh, you know, recording in, a, in, in kind of an old vintage studio that had all these old guitar amps. And uh, I can't remember what the, equipment was but it was old vintage you know consoles and two inch tape machines and all that kind of stuff and um you could tell right away from the basic tracks that it was going to be a hot record it just had that feel to it very energetic and inspired and 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 it was ferocious was the sound of it how rare is that to know that that early on in the process like is that really the stuff of gold well you know we didn't know how it was going to do. And, and it did fairly well. I mean, the record, you know, sold way more than any other Screaming Trees record, but it wasn't like a huge album either. It didn't sell millions of copies. I think at this point it sold about half a million copies. I think it's almost a gold record. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's a metaphor for the Screaming Trees in itself, right? Almost gold. <laughs> well, but, but what it was, was the dynamic was a, like yeah. in that band? Because I read Lanigan's book and I've had him on the show and, you know, we got on great. We had a great chat, but it seemed like at that point in time, his life was like just a car crash, like a living hell. Um, was, was, was the entire band just like at loggerheads the whole time? And what, cause you were obviously coming in like as the new guy, for lack of a better term, what was your experience just being in that dynamic with those guys? Was it a fun creative zone in the studio or was it pretty tense? No, it was it was not tense per se. I mean, well, first, I mean, I I, I love Lanigan's book too. I th I think he's a great writer, and and a lot of it is quite funny. Actually, I I laughed out loud a lot when I was reading his book, and and I've talked with him a bunch of times since then. 
I th- it um, reads more like a Bukowski novel than a musician's biography. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, considering that we were all reading Bukowski a lot during that period of time, you know, we all were reading his short stories. Um, well, I mean, there's a lot, as, as that book says, you know, there's a lot of history in the Screaming Trees before I ever joined the band. So that dynamic was in place. But, you know, my memory of it, and I, and I told this to Mark when, when he was writing the book and he was asking me for if I remembered anything, you know, so he, he was kind of comparing his notes with my notes because my book had already come out. And he, he, you know, we both kind of agreed like, well, that was like kind of the best period of the Screaming Trees as far as recording. And, you know, we were playing great shows at that time, too. Um, and there was the usual tension in the studio that happens with any rock band. I mean, that's just, you know, the nature of the beast. But, uh, I mean, my memory of it is that we all got along fairly well. And, you know, there were a few arguments here and there about like, no, the guitar solo should be like this or, or um, you know, that tempo's too fast or that's too slow or whatever. Um, although we didn't even use click tracks, we were just playing it live. And it um, sounds four- like that. It sounds yeah, it has yeah. that feel, you know. There's certain records yeah. that just sound organic and earthy and natural and honest yeah. from the heart. And that that's definitely one of those albums. Yeah, we cut all the basic tracks live. Mark was in the room when we did the basic tracks, and then he would redo his vocals once we had, you know, most of the song done. But there's not, you know, you listen to the multi-track, there's not that many overdubs. You know, there's like one rhythm guitar track and a solo and maybe a couple of guitar leads. Um, a few songs have, you know, like very minimal, maybe a Hammond organ or a Wurlitzer electric piano or something like that. And Lanigan's vocals and a couple backup vocals. It's really simple. But, um, you know, Mark's singing on that record is pretty exceptional. You know, you listen to his voice and he still sounds young. You know, he doesn't sound like the old grizzled singer that he does now. But he's got this real roar in his voice and um, it's really powerful. It's really powerful. You mentioned great shows. I mean, one of the greatest has to be, and I didn't realize that Kurt had kind of curated this bill. Right. Um, you know, I, I would always see that poster. My first festival was 2002, so I was 10 years later to Reading. But I always remember growing up seeing that 92 lineup, and you had, I've got it written down here because there's so many bands. You've got you guys, obviously, Screaming Trees. You've got Melvin's, Pavement, Beastie Boys, L7, Teenage Fan Club, Mud Honey, Nick Cave, and then Nirvana, that's like the best day out of all time, surely. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome, you know. And the funny thing about it, I mean, you're right, Kurt, that was Kurt's curation of his favorite bands at the time. And it was the third, third day of, of Reading, 1992. And uh, the funny thing is, is we had, we had played with Nirvana earlier that summer at Roskilde, where we had to play after Nirvana, which is really like a... It's a little bit like, you know, playing the Super Bowl after the Super Bowl is over with, (laughs) you know, it was just like, there were still like tens of thousands of people, you know, it was probably, probably 50,000 people out there, but we had a really disastrous show. It's, it's kind of infamous and, you know, don't need to spend a lot of time on that, but Kurt wanted us to play uh, Reading and Sweet Oblivion had just come out at that point too. I think it only been out for a week or two weeks at the most. And uh, that was like one of the most transcendental shows I've ever seen in my life. Every band played amazing. There were no technical problems, which, you know, big festivals like that always have them, but not on that day. It was, it was really amazing. And then that Nirvana show 
I stood on um, on the the uh, uh, stage left side by the uh, monitor console and watched the whole thing, and I was just like amazed at how good they were. And of course, everybody's seen that video now, so that there's the proof of it. But it's a pretty amazing day. Yeah, you talk in the book about how um, when you get together in a kind of a communal experience like that it connects you to something bigger than you know the sum of its parts doesn't it and you kind of liken yeah. spirituality and and worship to live music in that sense in the book which you know i really feel and agree with and i've been at shows like that not many that they're few and far between where you feel connected to something either higher or more inner um and you'd say that was definitely there in spades that day would you how many other times yeah. have you truly felt that in your life either it shows you've been out well shows you've specifically been a part of and played um you know yeah yeah that th there is a parallel between spiritual experience and great music because we, we all are spiritual beings i mean that's the nature of being a human being means you're a spiritual being but you find different ways to to experience that and for some people it's it's church or some kind of organized religion um, for others of us, maybe it's it's musical experiences or things that are just unorthodox, you know. And I, I have been lucky in that I've had a few experiences like that. Like, for example, when I was in high school in the mid-1980s, um, a friend of mine got tickets to see Ray Charles at the local county fair. And it turned out the tickets were in the front row in front of Ray Charles' piano. So I saw Ray Charles in, 19, it was 1983, 1984. And, um, you know, you might say, well, that was kind of, you know, like the end of his career when nobody knew about Ray Charles. But those of us that studied jazz, like, of course, we knew who Ray Charles was. And that was an incredible experience to see Ray Charles in person that close. Um, and then in 1986, I was an exchange student in London, actually. I was studying theater and music over there. And uh, I got a ticket to see Andre Segovia at Royal Albert Hall, the great classical guitar player. And he was 89 at that time. And then he passed away just like a, a month later. So that was one of his last concerts. And that was totally transcendent. That was, that was incredible to watch somebody that old, that good. And he played all acoustically. There was no amplifier. There wasn't even a microphone on his guitar. Wow. Um, that was actually I mean, the I, last show that I was at was the Royal Albert Hall on the 11th of uh, March for my birthday last year, seeing Brian Ferry. That was my last live concert. So, I mean, wow. that, yeah. that room and that space is ingrained in my head because that's the last yeah. time I was in a venue. And yeah. he did that without any amplification, just him and a guitar. Yeah, and that room is famous for that. Royal Albert is famous for just being acoustic like that. And I, I mean, I can name a couple of shows like, and, and these are not necessarily rock shows, but I saw Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, uh, the great Pakistani Kabali singer, uh, when he played in Seattle. And that was absolutely incredible. I've never seen that much energy. That, that was the kind of energy that I remember seeing at Nirvana shows. Um, and, then, and then another time uh, I had an instrumental band called Tuatara and we got to open for Ravi Shankar at uh peter gabriel's real world uh festival and um and i wow. stood on the side of the stage and watched ravi shankar and, I, and as i'm watching and i'm thinking this guy influenced the beatles <laughs> you know and a whole bunch of other incredible musicians and i'm just standing here watching him and then um 
when, when I didn't actually get a talk with him, but I did bow at him and he bowed back. And so just stuff like that, you know, over the course of many years, um, you just every now and then you see a band and you realize uh, this is their right hitting exactly in their stride at the peak of their ability. And it's incredible. Yeah. And when you travel as well and you see music of other countries and styles, you really are reminded of the universality of music and how it is the only language that does transcend, you know, all borders and politics and everything like that. And I want to get into some of your travels in a moment. I just want to linger in Seattle for a little bit longer and talk about the show you did at the Moon Theater um, with Mad Season, because that live record, again, I've only recently heard it through reading your book um, and just the sound of the crowd, like, and that's obviously a hometown show for you guys. That band was just, you know, an all-time super group, and you had Lanigan coming out as well. Um, what's your memories of that night? Yeah, that was that was also a night of you know extreme spiritual elevation. And in that situation, I was the drummer. Uh, yeah, that was an incredible show. Um, you know, that band never toured. We we just didn't have time with everybody's schedule, and but we did just play a handful of shows, and that was the one that. Fortunately, we had the good sense to record it and film it. Um, and uh, yeah, Lane was really in great condition at that time. You know, he had he bounced back from his addiction for a little while, and you know, enough to make that record. And you know, he did another uh, Alice in Chains record at, right after that. Um, but everybody was was really uh, in in good uh, physical and mental shape. And I remember we, we played, you know, the first few songs and um, the crowd was screaming so loud. I mean, it was, I mean, for us, that was like, you know, maybe what, I mean, I don't have a reference for that. It was just so loud and so persistent. It never stopped. And I remember Lane turning around and, and just kind of looking at me and he, he just said something like, Jesus Christ, it's so loud. <laughs> and, and uh, we just uh, we just played the songs from the album. You know, that's all we had were those 10 songs. And, and I think we did a John Lennon cover. We did uh, I Don't Want to Be a Soldier. And uh, it was it was amazing because not only did, you know, we had our families there. My gr- my grandfather was there. My grandfather, a World War II veteran, was like, I, I don't really understand what rock and roll is, but I'd like to see your band play. And so he came and sat with all these like screaming teenagers. <laughs> And he loved it. He thought, he was like, wow, that's pretty good stuff. Yeah, that record is incredibly special. Above, if, if nobody, um, well, if anybody, sorry, is, is listening to this and hasn't heard that album. Just amazing. Mike, Mike McCready, sorry, is on fire in it. And the way, yeah. you t- the way you talk about Lane and Baker in your book is so beautiful. And, and the, the respect and reverence that you have for those two guys as humans, as much as as musicians really shines through um yeah yeah and that was one of my favorite parts of the book and i mean was that difficult for you to write or was it nice to write and to pay tribute to them in that way you know that was actually one of the easier chapters to write because i'd kind of written a lot of that stuff already when i wrote um i wrote lane's eulogy for his funeral his family asked me to do that actually and so I used some of the things that I wrote in his personal eulogy in that chapter. And then I had also written the liner notes for the, for the Mad Season 
kind of box set that we did. Uh, I think that was in 2013. So I had a pretty good, I knew what I wanted to say. And I, and I kind of stole a lot of that from my own writing. But I think the important thing that I wanted to say in that chapter is that this is probably true for a lot of people, but in the Northwest, you know, we knew a lot of people that had addiction problems, whether it was, whether it was heroin or alcoholism or just all the isms that people can be addicted to. And we lost a lot of our friends, you know, like I'm, I'm 54 and I've lost a lot of my friends to addiction and, um, and that slow suicide, as they say. And I'm sure people in your country have that same story, you know, uh, music scenes seem to attract that. But um, but that doesn't mean that the people that suffer from that don't have great souls and great spirits that have beautiful things to express, whether that's through music or or even people that 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 aren't famous and and just are beautiful people, but they still, you know, go that way. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to shine a light on that uh, that perception that that people that have addictions or that that uh, end up dying from overdoses or uh, just from sometimes it's just bad health uh, does not mean that they weren't great people as well. And supreme talents in the case of those two. And, and oh, you yeah. You've yeah. obviously encountered and collaborated with so many over the period of your life all over the world. But, you know, those two in particular, and again, the way you write about them, just it must feel very special to get to connect with and and create with people like that that's a rare privilege on this earth isn't it yeah yeah and i i have had that privilege several times in my life i i do think there's a certain <clears throat> excuse me i would just say it's a it's a um it's it's an awareness of an opportunity to work with people that you respect and admire and then you say yes to that opportunity you don't shrink away from it. You say like, yes, let's do that. Let's find a way to do it. Let's get into the studio. I remember when we just getting into the studio to make the Mad Season album, we were we were kind of rushing because, I mean, not rushing to make the record, but just trying to get studio dates on the books because we all had bands that were trying to do the same thing. And there weren't that many opportunities to get into the studio. So we, you know, we found a studio and we were like, let's get in there as soon as we can. And we made that record fast, you know, like in a couple of weeks, but not because we were rushing. It was because the ideas were coming out so quick. But I've had, you know, I've been fortunate in my life that I've been able to work with some great people. Um, you know, I still work with Mark Lanigan. Uh, he's working on the soundtrack for a film that I'm, I'm the producer and, and he's contributed a couple of songs to that. Um, I still work with Peter Buck from REM and uh, Rich Robinson from the Black Crows. And, you know, a few years ago, I got to play with Jimmy Page. And uh, I, I take those opportunities as soon as I'm able to do them because life is short. It goes by really fast. And when I am approached and offered those opportunities or I see the possibility of a collaboration, I'm very much like Jim Carrey in the movie Yes Man. I'm just like, yes, let's do it. Let's not delay. Let's do it. That's a philosophy, isn't it? You know, it might yeah. be a it might be a simple one, but you, you touched on it there. It's the idea of remaining open to opportunity yeah. and experience, and and not denying yourself those opportunities when they present themselves. 
And you learn that through travel. I think it definitely opens your mind, broadens your horizon. Um, let's go in on some of the traveling and talking about like choices and experiences. You're a sober guy, right, Barrett? Yeah, uh, yeah. over 20 years. Yeah. So yeah. when you when you're in the the Amazon and the the opportunity to do the ayahuasca comes up, obviously, <laughs> I imagine there's a slight conflict there um, because obviously it's this potent psychedelic drug. But then the the reasons for taking it in that culture are very different to somebody in the Western world you know, using cocaine or heroin. These are very different forces used for different things. Um, let's just talk first of all about the invitation to go down to the Amazon, how that opportunity presented itself. Um, and then when you got there, your initial experiences of just this beautiful world that sadly I've never entered, but I hope to someday because it just looks and sounds in- incredible. It is. It's, it's one of the most incredible points on this planet. Um, okay, so by the time I was invited to the Peruvian Amazon, I had already done a bunch of kind of amateur ethnomusicology work where I had gone to study with people and, and made field recordings just for myself. But some of those field recordings ended up in the Singing Earth book because I, I started doing this in the, you know, sort of in the late 1990s. I was in West Africa. At one point, I'd been uh, invited to Havana, Cuba as a music diplomat through the U.S. State Department. So I'd done Cuba. I'd been in Brazil. Cuba, I have been to. Cuba's an amazing yeah, country. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, yeah, that was, that was kind of amazing. I was with Peter Buck, actually, and uh, we met Fidel Castro. <laughs> in, but it was like a diplomatic thing, you know, like where you go and you shake hands in a you like said that. he you said he had a regular suit on and it threw you. Yeah. Yeah, he's wearing a three-piece suit. He wasn't in his military fatigues. Yeah. yeah. But we were just there to work with the Cuban musicians, you know, which are, let me just say, probably the best in the world. They're just incredible players. So anyway, I'd done, you know, a lot of projects like that. I had gone back to school. I was in about to start graduate school. And, uh, and uh, to, I was, I was working on a PhD actually, but, um, my master's field work project was, was to work with the Shipibo shamans in the Peruvian Amazon documenting their curing songs. Didn't have anything to do with ayahuasca. Um, and it's funny for me because ayahuasca is this huge thing now, but this is almost 20 years ago that I was going to the Amazon and, and it was a very underground thing at the time. So um, anyway, I went down. I was approved by my, my, my graduate committee to go down there. This is in 2004. And I, uh, I just immediately started connecting with the shamans. I was recording their, their healing songs. It's all a cappella, and it's, it's a matriarchal culture. So almost all the shamans are women, and the grandmothers teach the, their daughters, and they teach their granddaughters. And there are male shamans as well, but it's, it was totally like run by the women. They ran the whole village and ran everything that happened there. And it was really a magical, transformative experience just doing the music part of it. But from the first day I was there, the shamans were like, you, you have been you know, imprinted by Western culture and there's a toxicity there that we need to purge out of your system. And so the very first night we were there, they made us do... Uh, what was quite a huge amount of ayahuasca. I didn't have any reservations about it, and I'll say why. Number one, um, it's not an addictive drug. It's not a narcotic drug. So it's not even comparable to things like alcohol, heroin, cocaine, which 
are toxic in the body um, and, and made in horrible ways. <laughs> the ayahuasca, I went with the shaman and we cut down the vines and the leaves and we made the ayahuasca. I like helped him do it. So it's a very different experience like that, very spiritual experience. And I'm a big proponent of anything natural so like peyote and mushrooms and any of the natural organic psychotropes that help people have visions and realize their potentiality, I'm all for that. All those other narcotic drugs, all they do is destroy your soul. It doesn't have anything to do with spiritual awakening. So anyway, that's, that's the dichotomy of those two things. Yeah, no, I mean, you've obviously witnessed so many people, you know, lose their lives to the horrible side of, of drugs i mean drugs right. is a complicated word and you know the things that you mentioned there aren't even drugs really are they they're, they're as you say they're natural remedies they're natural medicines right. um and i've had nothing but positive experience with mushrooms and things like that and you know there's there's real power um medicinal healing qualities as much as spiritual isn't there there's like you know medical proof that these things yeah. help with depression and all kinds of things and what was your you, you explain and describe the experience so well, but I mean, it's, it almost sounds like sort of interdimensional out-of-body travel. Um, when, when oh, you yeah. <laughs> I did have out-of-body travel. It does. I mean, that's a whole experience. I mean, to, to actually leave the body and travel like that is really powerful. I don't even know how to go. I mean, that that's just a whole, you know, it's a personal experience, so there's not too much, you know, to to add, accept that yeah. those kinds of indigenous ceremonies cause spiritual experiences unlike anything else. And, and I, I, I want to backtrack and say one thing now, now certainly, you know, certain drugs are great for, for our health. You know, I, I mean, there are members of my family that, that take um, certain medications and it, it makes their life far better than it would be without it. So I, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater here, you know? Yeah, you're and, talking um, about street drugs. You're talking yeah, about I'm talking about street drugs. Poison. Yeah, yeah, right. But then, you know, you can, take, you can take pharmaceutical drugs to the extreme too, like we had in this country where people were highly addicted to painkillers and, and were overdosing and, and it was horrible. And it was, it was a calculated pharmaceutical product that was designed to be addictive and, and it just had this horrible effect on our society. Um, so every, it's all about balance and everything, right? You know, drinking in a, in a pub is awesome. And I've done that in, in British and Irish pubs. And it's one of my favorite memories, but I've seen people drink their liver into total destruction. You know, that's, that's the bad side of it, you know? So it's all about balance, right? But I do think that a differentiation is really important between street drugs that are made in somebody's laboratory and the stuff that grows in the Amazon rainforest or in the American Southwest desert, or fortunately, magic mushrooms are, are abundant here in the Northwest and over there in the UK. Yeah. And <laughs> I've only done them a few times in my life and every single time is, you know, a fond memory and nothing but a positive experience, but you know, each to their own, isn't it? One thing you do talk about in the book is the link between spirits and you know in mythology obviously spirits and i didn't really realize how to what extent but in all mythologies around the world spirits are you know fond of alcohol and tobacco aren't they this right, is like the right. thing that coaxes them out and you talk about the relationship between spirituality 
and addiction and we've sort of touched around those things a bit but i wonder if you could maybe shed some light on your thoughts on that relationship between those two things here well one of the things that i studied a lot um both in the field and in graduate school is i studied um african mythology and the way that it moved to the new world um unfortunately it was because of slavery but a lot of those mythologies and religions came to the new world and then were syncretized with Catholicism. And so we ended up with things like voodoo and Santeria and Candomblé and all of these really beautiful forms of, of uh, African spiritual expression in the new world. Um, you know, the stereotype is that, you know, this is like, you know, the bad voodoo. But when you go to those ceremonies, as I did, uh, it's very the opposite of that. It's about community. It's about um, communing with the ancestors and talking to the spirits of ancestors and talking to the spirits of, of the Orishas, which are the great African saints. And they're syncretized with Catholic saints because they have a lot of similarities in their personality because they're archetypes, right? They're, they're Jungian archetypes of, uh, you know, for example, the great warrior or the great healer or the great mother or the great father or uh, the person that works in the underworld and works with the dead, but is also, you know, very powerful and influential. So um, in those ceremonies, you know, they call it giving libations. So, you know, rum is, uh, you know, drunk, but then sprayed through, the, you know, on the floor and, and uh, you know, poured at the altar and cigars are smoked. And it's because the spirits like the human experience. They remember, you know, what it was like to have a human body. And they remember like, oh, I liked, you know, drinking rum and dancing and smoking a cigar. So it's just to, to remind them of the rest of us that are still stuck here in this physical existence. <laughs> it's kind of like, here, here are the sweet, good things um, from, from this particular physical existence and uh, come, come and have a conversation with us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
it's interesting as well that you look at so many people and they use spirituality <coughs> to overcome their addictions as well and and the link there of you know healing and finding solace from those you know horrible feelings that addiction instill you know with that exploration of the spiritual self and well i again it takes us back to that that thing about balance you know um a lot of beautiful things have have happened between people over um you know a glass of rum i'm just using rum as an example because we're talking about these these uh these particular uh religious practices but a lot of horrible things have happened over that too you know um I think it's just about finding the balance of what works with your spirit, what works with your particular um, spiritual practice. But I don't think that, uh, um, I mean, I, I am making kind of a hard distinction here. The, the, the hard street drugs are just, I mean, they're destroying this country. I don't know what it's like over there, but it's bad. You know, we've got meth everywhere and heroin everywhere and coke everywhere and i think you know part of it is is part of the human addiction cycle you know it's it's like everything you could possibly want is now available to you and a lot of it you can just get off the internet or you can get it on your street corner but everything you could possibly want to the most extreme amount is available and uh, I don't know if that's a if it's a capitalist society disease, like when you can just. I was going to ask you about that. Have you encountered yeah. addiction as this rife thing in you know in places like Africa or Asia? Have you seen it in other parts of the world, as evidently I, as the UK and America? I mean, I spent um, a few months in West Africa. I didn't see anything like that. What I did see was a lot of disease and poverty, you know, people with horrible uh, polio that had like really deformed their, their spinal structure, a lot of, you know, just dirt poverty, um, but also a lot of beauty and celebration in, in the culture and the music and the art. Uh, in South America, yes, there, there, there is that. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Brazil and Brazil has that extreme thing where you have a very small percentage of people that have all the wealth and the vast majority of people that have very little. And I'm talking percentages of like five, 10% have all the wealth and 90% have virtually nothing. Yeah. Um, and it's getting to be that way in the United States. It's getting really bad. The homelessness situation is terrible. Drugs are rife in that situation. Um, but, you know, we used to talk about the rock stars that had heroin addictions in the 1990s. And now it's like housewives in Indiana that have it, you know? so. This is a huge problem. It might be the biggest problem we have have to face aside from, you know, climate change. And I don't have the answer to it. It seems to me that it's connected to capitalism that only serves a few people, like a relatively small percentage and everybody else is working their asses off just to survive. And then that makes them prone to the addictions because that's a brief respite within the whole hellhole of it. But um, but I don't think that it's uh, it's not something that is easily explained away. It's like a variety of complications and factors that are contributing to this. But it, it's only getting worse over here in the United States. It's not getting better. I mean, I know they're talking about the economy rebounding and all of that, but but the structural 
problems in our country are directly related to this kind of capitalism where the wealth is siphoned out and only a few people are benefiting from it. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And it is the same over here. And it's, you know, it's troubling. I want to ask you this. You mentioned Africa a couple of times um, and, and you talk a lot about how m many of the places you visit in Africa, you're pretty much the only white person everywhere you go. And oh, yet, that's right. And yet you're always treated like absolute gold. And I just wanted you to shine some light on that because, you know, I've always known that racism is ridiculous and ignorant and stupid. But there's what the way you word it in your book and you just say, like, you know, skin is like a coat. And different people just have this tiny little bit of, you know, a fabric almost that covers what's important, which is what's inside of them. And it's, you know, you really just hammered home, not that I needed telling, but the way you worded it, I was like, that just really exposes the absolute absurdity of racism. And, you know, it would be very easy for people in Africa to see a white guy and hate that person for what, you know, our culture has done to theirs. And yet you talk about how everywhere you went, like, without exception, you were just treated with such kindness and generosity and hospitality. Yeah. Well, racism is, is an aberration on, on all humanity. It just is. And in our country, it's systemic. You know, it's in all of the different, the strata of the society. And it's so built in that people aren't even aware of it um, in a lot of cases. But it's there. If, if you're educated and trained to look at it, you can spot it really quickly. When I was in Africa, yeah, I, I mean, 99% of the time, there were a few cases where, you know, I, I, I did get a little, bit of, a little bit of hell for small things. I mean, like at one point I was detained by the Senegalese police and accused of being a CIA agent. Um, but even then they were actually very polite to me. They just kind of held me for a few hours and held, held my passport and uh, did, did some kind of background check on me to realize that like, no, in fact, I really am a musician and I have nothing to do with anything like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I was just kind of traveling around going to villages and, and, you know, some of the bigger cities. And I think in some cases they thought, wow, that white dude is kind of brave. He's just like walking through here, like, <laughs> like Without a care like, in the world. <laughs> <clears throat> like he knows where he's going. So let's just let him keep walking, you know? But I, uh, yeah, I, I never had any problems. And what I thought was so cool about Africa was how, and I was in, uh, I was in Senegal, Ivory Coast, and uh, Ghana, and 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 a, you know quite quite a bit in each of those three countries, and everybody was um, very, uh, just you know kind of embracing that like I was there and I wanted to learn about their music and I was reading books and and talking to people and they were just like yeah come up you know, come, come hang out with us. So I got to play with some incredible master drummers and um, just kind of, you know, lived in the same place where they lived or I rented a, you know, a little hotel room or whatever they had available. And I would just hang out for, you know, a week or two at a time in each place and just kind of move around like that. So I, you know what, I also think it's the way that you carry yourself and the way you present yourself, you know, Big time. I, I, yeah. I was looking for those experiences, right? I wasn't looking for anything else. So. Yeah, it all comes back to energy, doesn't it? And what you put out is definitely what you get back. Obviously, that's not the sole crux of it all. But, you know, if you're looking for a certain kind of experience, then you're a lot more likely to get that, I think, than were you looking for another one. Um, I wonder if you could share some of your memories from your times in Brazil. You mentioned Brazil as well. You toured around there with a musician called Nando Reis, uh, just, you know, talking about playing like these ancient amphitheaters in the middle of nowhere. 
um and just like touring you know not just like going there and like full-on touring brazil um what was that like well you know brazil is one of those countries that if if you're a musician of course you it's kind of this exotic place where all this amazing music came from and they they have so many different kinds of music in brazil it's almost impossible i can't even like list them all and it it's it's not like the united states where you have like a set category of music and you know you're kind of pigeonholed into that <clears throat> down there everybody kind of knows about all the different kinds of music you know they play they have their folkloric music they play jazz they they're heavily influenced by american rock and roll but they have their own version of it um Tropicana they, stuff right yeah tropicalia exactly and they've experienced um, a military dictatorship that took over from what was it, 1964 to 1985. I mean, it was 20 years of a military dictatorship where the Tropicalia artists were repressed and people like Caetano Veloso and Gilberto Gil had to flee uh, actually to your country. They lived in, in England for a few years uh, for, for their own safety. And then they were able to come back. Um, and so to, to get the opportunity to tour Brazil you know, I mean, I knew what it was like to tour in a van around the United States and Europe, but I had no idea what to expect in Brazil. But they have these incredible music communities in the most remote parts of the country. You know, we'd go like way, way out into the countryside, like the edge of the Amazon rainforest, and we'd be playing some amphitheater that was built in the 1940s or 1950s. And like hundreds or thousands of people would just come out of nowhere to come see the band, you know. Um, and you know, some of it was like pretty hard touring too, you know, in tour buses that were really old on roads that were much older. And it was just you know, kind of like survive the night on the bus. And then, you know, you have a great show the next day. But, um, I really, I really love Brazil. I love Brazilian people. I love the spirit that they have because this is another thing. It, it kind of compares to that mad season concert that I was talking about. Uh, the shows I played with Nando, Nando is now a very famous, uh, one of the most famous Brazilian singer-songwriters. Uh, we won a Grammy together a few years ago for a record that I produced for him. And But when I started with him 20 years ago, he was just kind of this guy starting out, you know, he'd been in kind of a boy band, a Brazilian boy band, and then he was starting out as a singer-songwriter. And uh, we had a lot of shows where there just weren't that many people that came to the show. <clears throat> but then when I went down to tour with him again in uh, 2000, uh, what was it, 2017, uh, everybody in the sold-out arena knew every word to every song and were singing them louder than the band. So, like, wow. I mean, that's a different experience when the audience is louder than the band and they're, they know the lyrics perfectly. Every show was like that. That's how Brazilians are. When they love somebody and they love the songs, they learn every word. Yeah, and after reading your book, and, and one thing I've been watching a lot of over these last few pandemic months and, well, now year, is Anthony Bourdain's show, Parts Unknown. And I spoke, yeah. to, I spoke to Lanigan about Bourdain because obviously they were very close. And I've just been living vicariously through his show and through your writing. Um, have you, I imagine you more than most, have missed travel and i mean the concert element of it sure but just the travel element you must have really missed over the last 12 months so my question to you is this barrett where is first on the list once that kind of thing is allowed again 
have you have you got the list of as soon as I can get on a plane? Here's where I'm going. Have you made that yet? Yeah, you know what? I'll be honest with you. My wife and I, I've I've racked up a lot of British Airways miles. Love British Airways. Congratulations on making the greatest airline in the world. Uh, it this is, is from a man in the know. <laughs> That's right. British Airways is the best, man. I love it. Um, and I, you know, the, it's awesome because we have this like direct fl- fr- flight from Seattle to uh, Heathrow that I've taken many, many times. Eight hours, and you're in in London. <clears throat> but uh, we're we're trying to figure out where we want to go, and um, we were talking about maybe going to uh, to Kenya, to Nairobi, because we I've never been to East Africa. I've never seen the great animals, and uh, I'm actually writing my third book right now, which is about growing up in the Northwest and all the animals. Up here. Oh wow! Okay, like, so you're bringing little... in a whole new element <clears throat> to the writing. Yeah, yeah, I love animals. They're just the funniest things, you know. They they teach you a lot too if you pay attention to them. And uh, so I'm kind of writing like my short story animal book, I guess. Um, it, it'll come out later this year sometime because uh, I'm, in, I'm in edit mode right now. But Amazing. We're, we're talking about going to Nairobi. Um, but, you know, my wife and I did a lot of traveling during the pandemic, but we had to be really careful because it was all related to music projects that I was working on. So I, I produced an album for the poet laureate of the United States. Um, her name is Joy Harjo. And we had to get from Seattle to Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so that involved like a flight and renting a car and driving for, you know, 12 hours and, you know, like doing all of this uh, kind of mostly car driving. So we, we spent a lot of time driving around the Midwest of the United States. And that's some of the best way to travel, right? Is just in a car watching the scenery unfold as you go along. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the United States, you know, like the Southwest and, and, you know, Everything west of the Mississippi is kind of awesome driving. I mean, you just can't beat it. But um, yeah, so we did a lot of road work while I was producing and uh, working it with, you know, portable recording systems because we couldn't get into a studio. And, and, uh, and I've, just, I've just finished another album with uh, Peter Buck and Rich Robinson and Joseph Arthur because we have a new project. Um, it's being is, is that by... the scattered diamond record, or is that something else? No, no, that that was my solo record. But right. but I'm 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 in a new band with Peter Buck, Rich Robinson, and Joseph Arthur, and our wow. record's being mixed by uh, Jackknife Lee right now. Who's a uh, he's I believe he's Irish actually. But what he's... an incredible lineup! I love Rich and known Rich many years. Um, Peter yeah, Buck, he, that guy's an incredible guitar player. He's yeah, yeah uh, he's yeah, great tone and Peter Buck as well, huge influence and. I mean, you've done a lot of stuff with him over the years. It seems he's kind of like one of your closest friends and collaborators. Is that safe to say? When did you two first meet? Yeah, Peter. Peter's one of my first mentors. You know, he's about 10 years older than me. So you know, he's like an older brother mentor. I met him in the early 90s. And I can't remember the exact year, to be honest with you. But it was when they were up here mixing. Um, I think it was the Out of Time record. So what, what year would have that been? Like 93? Something like that. Yeah. But I do know Early the first, to mid nineties. Yeah. Yeah. But I do know the first recording session we did was um, with Mad Season because he came in and wrote a song with us and it didn't come out until many years later in the box set. But, but he did one of those Mad which, Season sessions. Which one's the one he wrote? Black Book of Fear. <sighs> that one is the best of those four landing right. ones that you did. Yeah. I was listening to yeah. it earlier. That one just, it shines. What an incredible song that is. Yeah. Yeah, Peter wrote the guitar line, and then Mark wrote the lyrics, and we wow. all did that back. I mean, I think that was ninety four or 
or maybe early 95, something like that. And uh, so, yeah, and, and we were just, I was just kind of adding up my discography with Peter. And this album we just did is the 30th album that he and I have worked on together. Because, you know, Peter and I have this, and I mean, I think this is a good way to be. Like, we've backed up people that you've never heard of because we thought they were great songwriters. And we would just be in the backup band in the studio. Well, I was listening to your playlist on Spotify, actually, before I started reading the book. So you, you've yeah. obviously got the, the playlist that accompanies the book. And I was listening to it and I wrote down the first name that I wrote down was Sedell Davis. Is that how you pronounce it? That's that's him. Sedell Davis. That's, C. Dale the, Davis. That's, that's the film that I'm working on right now. I'm doing the soundtrack and uh, music supervising it. And uh, it's an incredible lineup of people on that soundtrack. Because it's all and it's these a film people. about his life, is it? Yes, it's about his life and about all his teachings, you know, because he, he was kind of like a Buddha in, in a wheelchair. You know, he'd been in a wheelchair <clears throat> since the you know, mid 1950s and he lived to be almost 92 years old. So he was the last living blues man. In fact, the film is called The Last Blues Man. <clears throat> and uh, basically what we did is we, we have film footage of him going back into the 1980s, and I think some of it is from the 1970s, about his unique way of playing slide guitar and, and his whole influence on Delta Blues. Because he, he's a contemporary of Muddy Waters and B.B. King and did John he Lee. See, did he see Robert Johnson? Or do you yes, think that was, yeah. He, he did yeah, yeah. He was about 10 years old, and his father, he was born in Helena, Arkansas, which is on the other side of the river from Clarksdale, Mississippi. And his dad had like a little grocery store. And it, it was ironic, it was his stepdad. Um, his stepdad is the one that said, you got a talent, you got to keep doing this. Because, you know, he'd had polio at the age of 10. And, you know, he, he did not have a lot of options in his life. <clears throat> so Robert Johnson played at this speakeasy in Helena, Arkansas. And Seidel saw him. And he was about 10 years old. And he saw like, the whole like magic of what Delta Blues was all about. And that inspired him to pick up a guitar and figure, figure out how to play it. And so he ended up becoming, you know, this like very influential, but still obscure Delta Blues artist. Like he influenced a lot of people, but he didn't become famous like B.B. King because he didn't move to Chicago or New York. He stayed in the Delta. So you know, Peter and I played with him in 2001 and 2002. Um, I got Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses to play with him in 2013. And uh, a bunch of people from Seattle that, you know, I, I, I would be like, you got to play with this guy and just feel what he's all about. And it's going to change you for the rest of your life. And it did. So we have all this footage of him in the studio and, and uh, you know, archival footage of him. And then I'm putting together a soundtrack that's all these Delta Blues classics. So Mark Lanigan did a couple Blind Willie McTell songs. And um, my band wow. with Pete. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, it, and Peter grew up like five miles from where Blind Willie McTell used to play. So this is that thing about American music. You know, it's all, it all comes out of the Mississippi Delta. Everything is influenced by that. Jazz, blues, rock and roll, art, rhythm and blues, country blues. Even hip hop all has roots in what came out of the Mississippi Delta. And so some, you know, some of the guys like Peter and Rich are from the South. So they remember all that stuff. Um, you know, then guys like me and Mark, you know, the Yankees, you know, that are from the North, 
um, we're still heavily influenced by that. You know, like Lanigan is kind of a reincarnated blues singer, really. That's ultimately what he is. He's just this incredible earth-based, one of the greatest vocalists in, in American history, I think. I just happen to have played in a band with him, but he is just this incredible singer. No matter what he, no matter what he sings on, it sounds amazing. And so anyway, my job is just to, to like compile all of these Delta Blues songs that are being done by all these different artists. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people on the soundtrack. I can't even name them all. But uh, so are so, you the executive yeah. producer of that? Yes, I'm, yeah. I'm the producer and, uh, and music supervisor on the film. So I, I really have had to use my graduate degree in ethnomusicology to like really study like what this was. And, you know, and, and we, we give a lot of credit to the British rock bands, too, because for a lot of us, our discovery of the blues came because we listened to Cream and yeah. Led and Zeppelin. The, and, and the Stones even before that. Right? Totally. And the Stones. And, but, you know, that's a generation before us. So we just got the records when we got the records. We didn't know exactly when those records came out or even very much about the bands. We just knew, like, yeah, you probably should listen to Exile on Main Street. That's considered one of the greatest records of all time. And, uh, and check out all these other bands. And, and then through that, you know, it's like, oh, that's a song. That Led Zeppelin song is actually by Willie Dixon. Maybe I should listen to some Willie Dixon. And then you go and you check out Willie Dixon and all the stuff that he did at Chess Records. And so for a lot of us that came up in the, in the 70s and 80s, you know, that direction to the blues came because of the British classic rock bands that were reinventing what they heard when they got those, you know, the, the, the story of it is amazing. It was American World War II sailors taking blues records to England, and they ended up in the record shops and pawn shops of Liverpool and Belfast and all those. And then the, the hip British musicians got those records and were like, this is really cool. This is something that should be like, we should be influenced by this. And they were hipper to it than the Americans were. So, yeah, it's, it's just this beauty of the early sort of 60s story of rock and roll is this great love affair between, you know, the two yeah. countries, isn't it? Transatlantic yeah. back and forth and, yes. and, and each country just inspiring the other. Because obviously when the UK, the British invasion happened, then you had the psychedelic movement afterwards in the States, which then came back over here and, Amazing yeah. stuff. That's the thing that I love the most about music is like just delving into the past further and further back and finding the root of it. And something you discuss in your book is the root of all of it is African music, not just music, yeah. but civilization as well. Like that is right. the motherland of us all, which again, just, you know, to touch on what we were saying earlier, reinforces again how absolutely absurd racism is it's like because we all come from africa ultimately <laughs> yeah that's right we're all from you know one of the how many it's like uh uh 16 or 17 genotypes that came out of africa and we're all descended from one of those and the first university technically was in timbuktu in mali and you know even the blues you know you can trace the roots of that to west african slaves that brought that music to north america and South America. I mean, it went both places at about the same time. And so really the history of our music, it's all traced back to there. You know, you can find elements of it in everything that the, the banjo, you know, the, the so-called American, you know, instrument of the South is from West Africa, probably from all over Africa, as far as, as far as I know, but 
But a lot of these things that we think are American or, or European or whatever, you know, like the roots of it is, is African. I would love to, as we approach the end of the conversation, and thank you so much for your time today, mate. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, as I knew I would. When I was reading your book, <laughs> I was just like, this guy gets it. He's connected to life. He is, he's, you know, he's curious. He's, he's passionate. He's, he's got empathy and intelligence, all these things. Uh, I can't recommend the book enough as well to anybody watching or listening to this. Um, if, if people do want to get any of your music or literature uh, or just find out more about yourself, have you got a website, Barrett, a website address? Yeah, my, my main website is just my name, barrettmartin.com. And I'm on all the, the social media stuff. As much as I, I don't want to be there, I am there. <laughs> yeah, it's like a necessary part of it all, isn't it now? Well, I'll get yeah. you on Instagram as well. We'll have to stay in touch because I'd love to pick your brain for travel tips down the road. But what I want to kind of close on and hopefully there's an, a slant of optimism to this but the world planet earth what does the future hold in store for us you know if just obviously you're not an environmental expert but you've certainly traveled and experienced the world and you've been about and you've seen you know the effect that these you know lifestyles that are prevalent nowadays are having on the planet are we going to be okay is it too late to change the tide what can we be doing um, please don't tell us we're doomed. <laughs> no, I don't believe in doom. I don't believe in that. I, I believe that everything, it's never too late for anything, you know, and that's true of us as individuals. And it's true of us, you know, as individual societies and as a global society. But I, but I will say this, you know, having, I, I, have done music projects, uh, in, the the Amazon rainforest and I last year I completed one in the Alaskan Arctic for an indigenous tribe up there uh, called the Gwich'in and they are really experiencing the the climate it it's really a crisis up there this is not just climate change anymore this is becoming a crisis because um, I've been there several times I've been to Alaska many times I've been to the Arctic a few times the ice is disappearing and it's radically affecting temperatures and ocean currents and that is going to affect the entire world and the the problem that i see is that you know maybe people in london or new york city or even seattle don't experience it that extreme so they don't think it's really happening or or that it's not going to affect them that much but these are just you know the beginning signs of of what is going to be radical change in in our global climate um, I have, I mean, as a, as a former academic, and you know, and I, I think I, I wrote this in the book, you know, I, I was a college professor for seven years too, you know, where I taught music and environment and the connections between the two, because they are very, very connected. And so all I can say to people is like, trust what the scientists are saying and trust people uh, that, you know, like myself, like I have been to these places, boots on the ground many times. I, I've seen what's going on and it is really radically damaging to the environment. Um, also, you know, it's, it's happening in the oceans and, and uh, we, we are going to, as a global society, we're gonna have to switch from the fossil fuel source because it is just too damaging. Um, so we're gonna have to wean ourselves from that and find other alternative forms of energy we need to um, conserve as many things as we can and recycle as many things as we can. And if we all just kind of get on the same page together, we can do it, you know, that it's all possible. But um, we have to have a will and a desire to do that. We have to want to leave the world in a better shape for our 
children and our grandchildren uh, more than was left for us. We just have to start thinking like that. What an amazing chat. Thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you, mate. And I, I really enjoyed it too. Thank you. Uh, great questions because great questions make great conversation. Well, they all came from your book. It was just easy to write down, you know, interesting talking points because they're all there in your book. We didn't even get on to rated R either, which we'll, <laughs> sa we'll, we'll save that for another time. But rated R for me is one of the last truly original, unique, dangerous, exciting rock and roll records. And it's, yeah. you know, it's a masterpiece. Uh, I'm good friends with Davey Catching, love Davey. And, uh, you know, Dave, Dave Catching is one of the greatest human beings on the planet. I, I've known Dave, you know, for, it's uh, it's getting close to thirty years, you know, at least twenty five years. Wonderful human being. He's all heart, all soul, and you know, I guess a big part of why that record does sound unique is because of some of your percussion work. You know, you can take some of that because it does sound different to most rock albums then, now, uh, and before and since. And yeah, there's a large part of that I think down to what you were doing. But we'll talk about that in more detail another time. We'll do a part two, and w when the uh, the third book's out, and when the movie's out. We'll reconvene, and, and I'm sure there's there's still so more. Well, I know there's a lot more that I want to ask you. So, yeah, we'll do a part two if you're up for it. That sounds fantastic. I'll make sure to send you the books and the film and all that stuff when it when it goes live. Please do. Uh, have a great day, man. Thanks so much for all the great music. And, uh, yeah, you take care. And until we meet again. Thank you, sir. See you, see you soon, Barrett. Thanks, mate. Thank, and thank you, England. I love I love your country. Thanks for having me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.